Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Genesis together, and uh, we come now to chapter 3. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now, and uh, they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Genesis chapter 3 uh, is we study really a gleaning series through the book of Genesis, and uh, um, here, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than uh, any beast of the field, uh, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Where would we be in our understanding of anything uh, apart from it? And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray and ask and, and desire to study this passage together as a church, but we want to engage it personally in our own individual relationship with you and ask that you would add and subtract uh, related to that relationship, that you would enrich it, that you would strengthen it um, in the way that you desire to through these six verses of your Bible. And we pray for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 3 uh, provides us with a record of the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient garden of uh, Eden after uh, really gravely mishandling of the temptation of, of the devil. And I, I think that without understanding the historical record that is provided to us in Genesis chapter 3, if a person doesn't know Genesis chapter 3, does not understand Genesis chapter 3, it is absolutely impossible to have any kind of deep, meaningful understanding of the world that we live in on a daily basis. There is no way to make any ultimate sense of, of the world around us apart from an understanding of Genesis chapter uh, 3. If, Je if the Genesis account went from chapter 2 to chapter 4, uh, we would wonder uh, what in the world has happened? Because you would then uh, go from uh, at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, then God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good, uh, in two, uh, chapters 1 and 2, into chapter 4, where you have now murder, you have violence, you have death, and you would wonder what in the world has uh, happened. And Genesis chapter 3 explains exactly what it is that has happened. But what is true of Genesis chapter 3 is also true of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
No one can make any sense of life or the world in which we live without an understanding of Genesis chapters 1 uh, through uh, 3. And uh, nothing in, 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 that's been written, nothing in human history, nothing in human existence explains it so well as God does in these chapters. The Bible is an a infinitely deep book, and, uh, but it's not a very complicated book because it is the Word of God. It's going to be infinitely deep. But I think that some people look at the Bible and they say it's just incomprehensibly incomprehensibly, uh, complex. So they'll open up a a passage in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or something in the Psalms or in Proverbs or in Isaiah, and then maybe something from an epistle in the New Testament, and they try to make heads or tails of it, and they can't make heads or tails of it, and they just give up and think that that book is meant for somebody to understand, but it isn't for me to understand. It's hopelessly complex. The Bible, uh, though, uh, contrary to that, the Bible is actually, at its core, a very, very simple book. It is a record of three things. Number one, a record of God's creation of man, chapters one and two. And then the fall of man, chapter three. And then from the end of chapter three, all the way to the final chapter of the book of Revelation, It is a record of God's redemption of man, uh, God's plan and provision for man of a salvation to redeem us from all of the dreadful consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in that that ancient garden. We've already studied uh, God's creation of man in chapters 1 and 2 previously, and so this morning we come to the second of those uh, three great divisions in the Bible, and that is the fall of man through the fall of Adam and Eve. We won't cover all of this in a single uh, sermon, chapter 3. It'll take about four to get through it. We'll look at the specifics of the fall in these first six verses through two sermons. This will be part one uh, today. And then we'll look at the consequences of the fall uh, subsequent uh, to that. And then later, we'll look at God's redemption, the plan of salvation that He brought immediately into human history following uh, the fall. And so it, it does take a little bit of time to, to go through, uh, you know, this and to have this clear uh, within our minds. And it's important to know something about the temptation, something about the uh, devil as, as a Christian. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I w- uh, turned on Christian television. I didn't know who from who on Christian television. And this guy named Ernest Ainsley came on. And... Uh, kooky. <laughs> but I didn't know it at the time. And, uh, and so, it, it, very arresting in his personality. I mean, just almost like mesmerizing to watch him. What's he going to do next? And, uh, and then he announced to the congregation he was beginning something like a 25-part, 50-part series on the devil. And, uh, and it just about floored me. I mean, who in the world would want to sit through uh, 25 sermons consecutively on the Bible. Well, I certainly wouldn't, but it is important for us to understand as Christians uh, something, and a fair uh, amount of something related uh, to our adversary. When we talk about the fall of man, uh, this <clears throat> it's, I think, natural for us to think, especially if we're new to the Bible, uh, to wonder about this term. What does the term, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the fall mean, or what does the term the fall of man mean? And what it, it communicates and speaks to is of the fact that man was once created perfect, but he has now fallen from that original perfection due to the sin of Adam and Eve by disobeying the lone prohibition that God had given to them in that garden, as is recorded in Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Lord uh, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I think it's very easy. I wonder how many of us have wondered about it in our own lives, uh, even as Christians. But it's very easy as we sit here today in what is the absolute misery of the, the massive consequences of the sins of Adam and Eve and uh, something that we'll talk about those consequences another time. But I think we can very easily find ourselves in a, uh, asking uh, uh, quite wistfully, why did God uh, give them a prohibition? I mean, why, uh, any, why did He give them any prohibition at all, any opportunity to disobey Him at all? Why did He even uh, create the heavens and the earth with a tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did He offer them an opportunity to sin why did he offer them any alternative uh, to a complete, uninterrupted obedience to him? And, and the answer is, is in order to provide mankind with a choice in our relationship with God. Because without the freedom of choice, in a relationship with God, without a choice to love God, a choice to obey Him or disobey Him, then we would just be a pre-programmed robots in this relationship with God. In fact, you could hardly call it a, a relationship. And, and thus, our love for Him would not be truly meaningful in any way. It wouldn't be truly meaningful to Him without a choice, it wouldn't be truly meaningful to us uh, without a, a, a choice. As someone has put it, the classic illustration, I don't know what dolls are like today, but back in the old days, it was a big deal to have a doll. And it was a big deal to have one that had a string that came out of their back, and you would pull the string out and let it go, and it would tell you that it loved you. And, uh, and, and so, I pull it out, I love you. Pull it out, I love you. Pull it out, I love you. But how meaningful is the expression? There's no choice. There's no option there. There's no uh, life involved in it at all. Without a choice, the freedom of choice, then any kind of an expression of love in a relationship is, is meaningless. And we would just be doing something as that doll is doing, something it's been uh, programmed to do. No personal free will involved, no other option, no choice involved in all. And without uh, not only a choice, but without an attractive alternative choice, then the choice that we make to obey God, the choice that we make to love God, wouldn't be truly meaningful at all. Again, it wouldn't be meaningful to him. Uh, 
and it wouldn't be meaningful to us uh, either. This commandment, this prohibition that was given by God, it provided the opportunity to express genuine love, genuine appreciation, genuine uh, obedience to God. And the Bible teaches that without a choice, man can be innocent, but he cannot be righteous. To be righteous requires the opportunity to be unrighteous and then to choose to do the right thing in the face of, of that temptation. I think it's fascinating in this passage to realize that God knew that Adam and Eve would fall long before he created them, uh, long before he created anything. He knew that they would do precisely what they did, and that is to partake of the forbidden fruit and to sin. And the reason that we know that is because God provided for their fall long before He created them, and long before He created anything, the heavens, the earth, anything. Uh, John puts it in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, describes Jesus as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, and yet God provided an opportunity to sin, a choice to sin anyway. And again, why? Why take this immense risk that uh, you, uh, and he knew certainly ahead of time, was going to go badly, and again, it speaks to us of how important choice is. And it is the only way a relationship can be authentic, it can be meaningful, and that is the only kind of relationship that God desires with man. Now, you look at the world that we live in now post-fall, and I mean the world that we live in now is just jam-packed with temptation to sin. Is anywhere we want to look in life. And I mean, we can find ourselves, I think, almost lamenting the sheer number of temptations that are before us uh, every single day. I mean, the sheer number of sins that are available to us. We can look longingly at Adam and Eve and, and, and say they, had, they only had one temptation to sin. We've got a whole world of, uh, uh, that's put in, uh, of temptation put before us each day. And we can lament now the, the accessibility of sin, the unending temptation to sin. And it's understandable to think that way. But, but there's another way uh, to look at it as well. And I think a better way to look at it is to view all of the temptations to sin in life is just simply providing us with one more way to express our love to God, to express our loyalty to God uh, in saying no to those things and then saying yes to Him. Uh, all of these temptations represent, in a sanctified way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they represent one more way to express that we value our relationship with Him more than we value sin. And a love for God is the highest and the greatest motivation for holy living that is uh, possible, that e exists. It is the highest motivation, is this love for God and a desire to be loyal to Him out of appreciation for the relationship. No greater motivation exists in a Christian for 
saying no to sin and yes to God than, than that. Someone has said concerning temptation and sin, it takes a passion to conquer a passion. It takes a relationship with someone or something that I love more than these other things that are calling on me to love them. It takes a passion to conquer a passion. And it's true, the single greatest key to holiness in life is not found supremely in hating sin more, but it is always found in loving God more. And to come to the place in my life where my relationship to Him becomes more important to me than any temptation or sin in my life. And I don't think any of us will ever experience a victorious Christian life in the face of temptation and sin without this. To where we come to a place where the temptation is put before us, the sin that is put before us, sometimes we learn it by experience, and we look and say, the single great thing that keeps me from saying yes to this temptation is not all of the physical or the emotional or the mental consequences that will come my way if I say uh, yes to some forbidden fruit today. But the thing that stops me is I know that this will affect my relationship with Him. I know it will put distance between me and Him. I know it will grieve His Holy Spirit. I know it will quench His Holy Spirit. I know it will hurt Him and harm Uh, the relationship that we have. And because I can no longer live life with that uh, relationship being damaged, come hell or high water in every other area of my life, I can survive it, but I cannot survive life with that relationship being damaged. And when we have a relationship with God that looks like that, uh, and, and uh, has that kind of influence upon our lives, now we have the single greatest motivation, the motivation that is needed for a holy life and to say no uh, to sin. There is no higher motivation. And the wonderful uh, news is, is that God is desirous and is always working to develop exactly that kind of a relationship in each of our lives as Christians. James put it so perfectly in James chapter 4, verse 8. And and he declared there, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. It's a a tremendous promise, and it communicates something that is mind-boggling, really, the the truth. Because what it tells us, draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. It tells us that each of us can have as deep a personal relationship with God as we desire, that God will meet us anywhere we are willing to meet Him in terms of the depth or the intimacy of the relationship that we have with Him. And He will meet us there, and He will produce that relationship within us. And But we determine that. We determine that. And this morning, each of us as Christians, we have the relationship with God that we have chosen to have with Him. And that truth can be a great encouragement to us, or it can bring a great conviction, but sometimes a needed conviction. I, I also think it's important to realize that the choice God offered in the form of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, that it was an attractive one. 
verse 6 records for us that Eve uh, says that it was good for food and that it was pleasant uh, to the eyes. I mean, if you had gone, if God had created uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit on it, and it was just like some kind of a mash of rotten uh, figs, uh, that you would go up to it and start to look at it, and, and before, you, before you, just looking at it made you gag. Uh, touching it would make you gag. It, it, would, it couldn't even enter your mind that you would put that in your mouth and ever try. You, I mean, everything within you would just, it repulsed you. Uh, it, 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 you know, if, it, if, it, if that was the, the, the condition of the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it would hardly constitute a choice. Someone wrote, he said, there was no other reason why the fruit of this tree should not be eaten save the plain command of God. This was about obeying God or not obeying God, and that, that was the point of the prohibition. But I think it is also very, very important to understand as well that while God provided an attractive alternative to obeying Him, uh, it was not an alternative that was more attractive than the choice that He called them to. And that is the choice to do the right thing and enjoy all of the blessings of that. So in order for our choice to love God, to be meaningful, first there has to be the freedom of choice. And then that choice, second, needs to be an attractive choice. And then number three, there must be real consequences associated with the choice that I make. Now, this, the use of this phrase, the fall, uh, to encapsulate this catastrophe of Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden uh, of Eden is really the perfect word, or the perfect phrase. I mean, it, 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 it has enough of a feel of, of jarring you. It communicates this, this, in a graphic way, this sense that something, you know, seismic has, has happened. And, and yet the use of the terms, uh, the term the fall, is completely accurate in describing what that, that seismic something that has happened uh, is. Somebody might ask legitimately, uh, well, how can we know that this fall has actually uh, occurred? I mean, how can we know that we haven't always been this way as human beings? Uh, the awful mess that we are, uh, but that we were once, as Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 uh, tells us, that we were once actually something greater than we are now from which we have uh, fallen. And that is an outstanding uh, question, and a question that the Bible isn't afraid of, and God isn't afraid of, and the Apostle Paul certainly isn't afraid of, because he addressed that very question in Romans chapter 2, addressing the subject of conscience and its existence in, in human beings. He described conscience there in chapter 2, verse 15, as a law of God written upon each of our hearts that judges our every thought, our every motive, our every action. And this conscience accuses us when we do wrong, that is, we, when we do wrong, we know it and we feel guilty. It also excuses us when we do right. 
Uh, it, it affirms what we are doing is right, and it affirms it with what is known as a clear conscience. And our consciences, the Bible t- uh, teaches, are an innate, God-given knowledge of right and wrong uh, that each of us possesses, coupled with the intuitive sense that I should always do what is right and never do what is wrong. And you look all around the world in which you live, and we see a profound evidence for the existence of this conscience that God has given us. And you see all around the world there is the universal recognition that lying is always wrong, stealing is always wrong, murder is always wrong, sexual crime is always wrong, and then uh, conversely, that to refrain from lying and stealing and murder and so forth is always right. But one of the interesting things about our consciences is that the standard of our conscience in every one of our lives is higher than our actual practice. In other words, no one lives up to the standard that our conscience dictates that we should live up to. And that reveals something to us and is intended to reveal something to us. And what it reveals to us is that our conscience cannot have its origin in us, but rather in someone who is greater than us, in God who is greater than us, just as the book of Genesis teaches. And thus, our conscience is ever testifying to two great facts in our individual lives. And it continues to speak to us all day, every day, that we have been created by someone who is greater than us, and that somehow we have fallen from that something higher, and that all day, every day, that great gulf that exists between the standard of our conscience and the life that we actually live, it is communicating to each of us individually, you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. And at one time, man was superior to what he is now, and he has fallen from that high place. And all of it is exactly as Genesis chapters 1 through 3 uh, teaches. And that great gap that exists between what we know to be right and wrong and the life that we actually live, it is a strong, internal, personal witness to the existence of God, that He is our Creator, and that we have fallen from the very thing that we have been created for, a witness to the fall of man. And when a person looks, and if uh, the creation, speaking of a creator, is not enough to be a witness to them to acknowledge the existence of God and that God has created them, if the design, speaking of a designer, isn't enough, then God says, all right, you can blindfold yourself if that's what you want to do, to the witness of all of that. But I've put a witness right inside of you. And it's called that conscience and that gap that exists in that conscience. It witnesses to the fact that I have created you. I have provided you with a conscience. 
and that you have fallen, man has fallen from that higher something. And there is absolutely no blind faith involved in believing in the fall of man. There is, it is, there is nothing about it reads as a myth at all. Every one of us lives with the witness to the ancient, the, the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden. We live with it all day, every day inside of us. Now, let's, let's take a moment to examine this, this tempter, the devil, in verse 1. By the time Satan appears in the historical record of Genesis, he's already fallen. And in the words of Jude, has kept not his first estate. The Bible teaches that Satan was created by God, and he was created as a very high-ranking uh, angel. And uh, through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord uh, denounced the uh, king of Tyre by denouncing the spirit behind him, uh, the devil himself. And, and the devil is described in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, God speaking to him, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the presence of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And here is the devil being described as being astonishingly beautiful. And the Bible says that one day when mankind sees him, even when we see him as Christians, we will look at him and the single great thought that will come to the forefront of our mind is how can so much wickedness come out of something that is so beautiful? And Isaiah describes it, Isaiah uh, chapter 14, verse 16, and those who see you, speaking of the devil, will gaze at you and consider you, saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? But the fall of Satan occurred because of his pride. And uh, that description of his pride that led to his rebellion against God, we're given a glimpse of it in that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 14. Allow me to read a couple of verses from there to you. And uh, here is the description of his fall. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who wearied the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And then God chimes in, as happened to Satan, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the earth. And that phrase describing the fall of Satan repeated five times, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, is intended to drive home a point to every reader of the Bible. 
uh, every single child uh, of God in order that we might realize that in relationship to Satan's rebellion against God, it, it was the pride of his self-will, uh, his selfism. Uh, that he elevated that, exalted that above the will of God for his life. And and the result was a disaster. The result was that yet you. And God will, no one can pick a fight with God and ever have hope of being successful. Not even someone who is as powerful as the devil was in his original creation. And in this temptation of Eve, and, and the devil's temptation of every one of us sense. He attempts to get us, at the core of his temptations, is to get us to exalt our will above God's will and to exalt our will for our lives above his will for our lives. The Bible teaches that Satan's rebellion was unsuccessful, though it does appear that he had a third of the... Do- the angelic realm follow, realm follow him in that uh, rebellion and uh, against God, and they are what we refer to and know as demons uh, today. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't provide us with any revelation concerning exactly when Satan uh, fell in the progression uh, of, of things in his rebellion, when that rebellion against God occurred. Uh, apparently, we don't need to know. The entire focus of the passage is not upon when he fell, but why he fell. And it appears that the fall occurred sometime after chapter 1, verse 31, after God looked at all of the creation and declared it to be very good, and the angelic realm was a part of that creation. So it was all very good at the end of, of chapter 1, and then somehow this fall occurs before we get to the first verse of, of chapter 3. And many theologians think that, um, that, the, the, that the devil was, uh, pro- the, the angelic realm was probably created on the second day when God created the heavens, and, uh, and, and that, um, so that, that's, when they, that's when they were created in terms of the whole progression of, of the angelic beings being uh, created. And so the fall occurring sometime after that. This is food for thought, but don't bet your house on it. Uh, he, he, the devil's described as having uh, taken the form of a serpent for this uh, temptation of Eve. And that this, this serpent is, is actually the devil... Uh, taking on a a physical form is made clear to us by the Holy Spirit uh, in his commentary concerning this very event uh, in the last book of the Bible when in Genesis, uh, Revelation rather, chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Again, in the book of Genesis, Revelation, rather, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels cast out with him. You notice that the devil is described as cunning in verse 1. 
It means subtle. It means crafty. It means to be wise, but in a, a bad way, wise about uh, being up to no good. And, and he's certainly very, very good, good at that. And the craftiness or the subtlety uh, of the devil is on full display in this temptation of Eve long before he ever opens his mouth and begins to tempt uh, with, with words. You notice, first of all, in verse 1, that he attacks Eve when she was alone. And make no mistake about that. That was not an accident. That was something that he waited until that could occur. He waited until he could get her alone and he could tempt her uh, uh, alone. And he waited for the moment when he could do that. Personally, I don't doubt that the devil would have had a much harder time uh, tempting Adam and Eve together as a pair if he had endeavored to do it with both of them together as a pair. He might not have been successful at all, uh, and he knew that more than anyone. And so he catches her uh, uh, alone, and, uh, and, I, and I think in terms of that aloneness, in terms of temptation, it's no accident that when you go into the New Testament that Jesus, when he sent out in his public ministry, sent out the 70 to go out on their kind of missionary trips, he sent them out in twos. There's something about being more than just one in the midst of all of this. It's certainly one of the reasons that the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the assembling uh, of the saints, as many uh, have done, as, as the writer of the book of Hebrews said at the time. And the importance uh, as a Christian, and I'm not like drumming up business for the church, but the importance of every Christian. There's, no one's going to be successful as a Lone Ranger Christian, uh, a, a, operating and trying to manage this whole thing individually. We're all intended to be not only attend a church, but deeply connected with the church. And what a church is, the learning of the Bible, prayer, worshiping God, uh, serving uh, one another, the Lord's Supper, evangelism, all of these things are important, not only uh, for the health of the church, not only for reaching the world, but important to us in the midst of the degree of temptation that we face in, in the world. It's also, in terms of his, his guile and his, his subtlety, in verse 6, uh, you notice that he very carefully selected the location of the temptation. That he definitely waits until he catches Eve alone. And then number two, he catches her when the object of the temptation is, is within eyesight. He catches her uh, near the tree, near that, that, uh, that, uh, that temptation, the forbidden tree. The, the Garden of Eden was massive. There's just one river in the Garden of Eden, as we've already seen in past studies, was, it was so large that it fed four great rivers. It was the fountainhead of four great rivers that then uh, formed on the other side of the Garden of Eden. This place is absolutely massive. And, and so as you realize how large the Garden of, of Eden was, you just ask, we ask ourselves, what in the world, Eve, are you doing near that tree? I mean, if we, if we hope to stand in the face of the devil's temptation and his lies, we just simply cannot allow him to find us standing right next to the biggest no-no in our lives or the biggest threat to our personal relationship 
uh, with, with God and, uh, and obedience to Him. I mean, to do that just makes the, the devil's job very easy. It made it easy for him in an ideal situation. How much easier it is, is it in a, if, we, if we allow him that in, in, in the full fallenness of, of the world that we live in today? I don't know, but, but uh, uh, perhaps the, that um, the temptation would not have been uh, successful if uh, Satan had uh, brought the temptation to her and she was fully 12 miles away from the tree. I mean, it gives her 12 miles to walk and to think about it and to, to process and all. But if he can catch us, if we brought the temptation right into our house, we brought the temptation right into our lives, right near, the very thing we know is the thing that is the greatest threat to destroying our intimacy with God, we make it so easy for Him. And important to allow the passage to examine our own individual lives in that, that very, very way. His subtlety, it, 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 He is at work long before He ever opens His mouth. And to recognize His devices may be already at work in some of our lives here uh, the, uh, uh, this morning. One of the, but the most dangerous aspect of, of Satan's temptations is in what he, he says. Uh, the subtlety is, is most dangerous uh, there. And what he says and hopes to accomplish in a temptation is very, very predictable. Satan is not that creative. He doesn't have to be because the, the methodology that he uses is so successful that, that he hardly needs to be inventive uh, at all. And so he does have a modus operandi. He has a, a well-established methods that he resorts to. Many of what you are uh, exposed to us, as we'll see as we go, <clears throat> especially next week in looking at, at the passage. And, and it, 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 we'll look at those specifics of the, the verbal temptation in terms of the, the fall of Adam and Eve next time. But in order to fully set the table for all of that, I, I want us to just briefly notice, in, in closing here, just, just two more things that, are, that the passage reveals to us concerning Satan as a tempter. Uh, number one, notice that Satan initiated the conversation with Eve. Uh, you don't have to go looking for the devil. Uh, he will come looking for you. And that child of God or no child of God, he, he will do that. And so as we listen to these kind of things, you can sit here today and, and maybe be a Christian, not be a Christian, and uh, think, uh, why is he he's talk, talking about all of these things? Why is it so important to know all of these things? Because we're intended to know all of these things for when he comes. Because it's not a matter of if he comes. It's a matter of when he comes. And, and that, uh, that, uh, that these things are uh, in place in, in, in our, our lives before He uh, comes with the, the fullness of His subtlety and temptation beyond how He sets us up to fall, but then when He begins to speak uh, His temptations. And, and second, I want you to notice that Satan initiated a theological conversation with Eve. It's the it's last thing you think he would actually do. You say, okay, you got Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Satan wants uh, her, her to fall, 
And, uh, and so knowing what we do about Satan, what is the last thing he's going to talk about? I mean, the last thing you would think he would ever talk about would be God. That he would bring up theology. And yet that is exactly what he makes a beeline to. He begins a conversation and starts to talk with her about God. I think it's very fascinating to realize that the devil does not deny the existence of God. Oh, 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 no, he does. He is a firm believer in God. He does not cast doubt in her mind at all in the existence of God. He knows that's fruitless. Now, he believes in God. He knows the, the existence of God. And not only is he a firm believer in the existence of God, and not any, God, uh, any old God, but the God of the Bible. But the, the Bible teaches that the entire demonic realm is as well. James chapter 2, verse 19, James writes to us as Christians, and he says, uh, you believe that there is one God. And it's kind of like whoopee-doo. You want a button for that? Uh, you think that gets you into heaven just uh, believing in the existence of God? Uh, that's, you're just getting started in the existence, uh, with, with acknowledging the is, existence of God. He said, you believe there is one God? Great. Uh, that's my addition. I'll go back to the strictness of the passage. He says, you do well. That's a great starting point. And, but then he says, even the demons believe and they tremble. Among Satan and the entire demonic realm, there is not one single atheist, there is not one single agnostic. And the atheist or the agnostic in life, they have taken their views to a realm that even the devil himself would not go to. Now, how could he... How could he do so? How could he deny the existence of God? I mean, both he and Eve knew full well there was a God, and not just, again, not just any God, but the God of the Bible. And he knew that to deny the existence of God, in general, is a dead end with people. Absolutely a, a dead end. And so he does the next best thing, and that is he endeavored to change her thinking about God, uh, her understanding of God, and he introduced a new, another way of looking at things spiritually, another path uh, spiritually than the one that, that the God of the Bible has put before us. And the devil is never more dangerous than when he's talking about God or theology or the Bible. And you know why he's never more dangerous? Because the things that hinge upon those issues are eternal. The consequences are eternal. We all know something from our own experience about uh, the sins of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and those kind of temptations. But when Satan tempts us into sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of sins, that's a sideshow. It's serious business in its own way, but it's an absolute uh, side uh, show compared to when he starts to talk on behalf of God or begin to talk uh, about God. This is where he can do the real damage uh, to a person because Satan's ultimate goal is not to get us addicted to some sin 
or addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol or addicted to pornography or addicted uh, to some particular sin for the rest of our lives. All of that is just a means to an end. His ultimate goal is to get us to join him in his rebellion against God and like him to rebel against all divine authority in our lives and to like him make I will the supreme focus and aim of our lives as opposed to God says. That is at the core, that is at the bottom line of every temptation that he uses. And he'll use many, many devices to attempt to get us to that place, but that's where he is intent upon getting us. And everywhere you see a human being living for himself or herself, living supremely for themselves and not for God, exalting their will above his will, living in complete disregard to God and to his word, living in a deliberate even rebellion against the authority that God deserves in our lives by virtue of being our creator, Uh, to to say nothing of the fact that He is God Almighty and He is more real than the seats you're sitting on, more real than any of us in this room. He exists. And He is deserving of that uh, from us. And and, And when you have someone, as you look at the culture and look at how the selfism movement has just been uh, forced upon us. It has been, uh, it, it has had all of the, uh, all of the microphones within our culture for 40 years. And you see how many people now on the path of I will, rather than what does God say? What is God's uh, will? And you realize how effective his voice and his temptation is within, within the culture. And when you have someone who has, has elevated themselves over and above God, which is the the highest expression of pride, then you have someone who's following the path of of the ancient and and the present uh, Lucifer, and it all ends in disaster. And Satan is fully aware of the fact that one day he's going to be cast into hell. He knows that his eternal judgment is coming. And the only thing that he lives for now is to see how many men, women, and children he can seduce into following him into the horror uh, of that place. Satan has a real problem with authority in his life, even God's authority. And you look at the culture that we live in and how the respect for authority is ebbing on, on, a, on a purely physical level. It is, is ebbing. And there's a spirit that's behind all of that. But more important than the lack of respect for that kind of authority within, within the culture Uh, All of that just pales in comparison to the level of disrespect we see within our culture and the world and increasing disrespect for God's authority and the authority of His commandments. You ever look at the world and say, this place is crazy? And, and, And you look and you say, how can they believe that? How can so many of them believe that? How can they say that? How can they say that out loud? How can they say that out loud and get applause? How can they say that out loud and get an audience, get a following, when you you can look at it and it's ludicrous, it's crazy, it's insane what we're in the middle of 
And uh, as the old saying goes, is that once you reject God and the truth of God, uh, it's no surprise what anyone will follow then as a result. And this is where we are. And there's a spirit behind it. I can't make sense of anything that I see within, within our culture, within our world, without looking and saying, this is way beyond that human being and that human being and me as a human being. There is a spirit at work here. And there is a spirit at work here. And anytime you see the, the rebellion against God, against His authority, leading people uh, into that, you're dealing with a very real demonic realm that is being influential within a culture and growing in that in influence by leaps and bounds. You're not crazy. The war that is, is going on around us is a real war. But as the Judeo-Christian kind of heritage is ebbing within our culture, now you see this other thing flashing in, in, in a way where it's able to throw off all subtlety uh, at all and come forth in, in all of its uh, infamous uh, glory. But, uh, but this, is, this is what we see. And there's a demonic realm that is behind all of it. And without repentance, it, adds, it ends badly, very, very badly. But we're not going to change the culture this morning. And I'm not going to reach the culture this morning. That's what that, this is all, all, all about. But, but I want to reach individuals. And if you sit here this morning, and you have never, ever heard God's invitation to you, personally, to you, Here's his invitation. Jesus said it himself. For God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's you again, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God offers you another path. He offers you another life. He offers you everlasting life. He offers you the opportunity at a personal relationship with Him, a personal relationship with God. There's an alternative to the life that you have been living, the lies, the bondage, the uh, emptiness, the frustration uh, of it. And it is the relationship that you've been created for, and that is a relationship with God. And if you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front after the service, and they'd love to do that with you. But if some of us sit here today, and you've heard that gospel message many, many times in your life, but you haven't surrendered, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I don't want to do it. I don't want to turn to God. I don't want to go His way. I still like, I'm still willing to, to play the game. Uh, the self-willed life is what I want to do, and the consequences haven't come uh, falling on my head yet. I'm not yet reaping what I've sown. I like the balance that I've found, but that'll go out of balance in an instant. In, in one five-minute period, you can end up doing something under that influence, that sin that you think you have so much control over, and you will end up doing something that you will regret for the rest of your life, and you'd give your right arm to be able to have those five minutes back. It's not a game. It's not a game. As, as somebody's saying, this ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. In a spiritual realm, there's two realms 
And Jesus said that if you're not for me, then you are against me. There is no third path. There is no third existence, no third world. There is what is under the devil, and there is what is under God. And if today, because of whatever is happening in your life, maybe it's not a catastrophe, but it's just a drawing of the Holy Spirit within your life, and you say, this is the the day that I want to be saved. I want to turn before all hell breaks loose in my life, in this life, to say nothing of the life to come. Then you come forward, and these men and women would love to pray uh, for you and with you as well. And so we stop there this morning in our our introduction to uh, and setting the table for uh, an understanding for what comes next as we study this really incredible, incredible chapter. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank You for the instruction of Your Word. Thank You for its revelation, revealing to us what we would ever, never otherwise know apart from Your revelation. And Lord, thank You for the truths that we've looked at here today, these vital, important truths. And Lord, as you look at our lives here today and the world in which you've called us to live for you in these last days, um, we see how the devil's getting a pass. Fewer and fewer people believing in you and fewer and fewer people believing in him as well. And he just gets to whoop them one day after another, after another, after another. They're being destroyed by someone they don't even believe exists in this life to say nothing of the life to come. And thank you that you provide passages like this to help us understand the big picture of what we find ourselves in the middle of all day, every day. And not only to understand it, Lord, but how to successfully navigate it. I pray and we pray for all of the different things that have been said today in this sermon. And however any of it might be a word of exhortation, edification, or comfort in any of our lives, I pray that you would give it that supernatural life and continue that point in the sermon in each one of our lives in the context of our personal relationship with you as you see necessary. And I pray and we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.